Welcome to another broadcast in our podcasting series from the Fleming Foundation from Under the Rubble. Today, as with all previous sessions of this for the past six months, we have Rex Scott, but we're inverting the schedule today. Mm -hmm. Rex is taking over, and Rex, Rex has a series of things he wants to ask. Yes. Um, so we're going to dive right in with these most basic questions. And I want to say right off the bat, and I might mention it later, that if you have a question for the doctor, that we would love to have you email that on the website, Fleming Foundation, and we would ask it in a, in a show. Your questions are important to us. We'd love to hear from you. I have not seen or heard anything <laughs> about the questions or even the basic subject. Disclaimer. <laughs> Here we go. Number one. Who, in your opinion, is the most important person in American history? Hmm. That's a. <laughs> I, I'm not much as a list maker. You mm-hmm. know, people say, "Who are the three? Who are the three greatest singers?" I, I noticed a couple of years ago they had, and that well, a couple of years ago it was probably the year 2000. Um, they, who are the greatest singers in the history of the world? Well, they all turned out to have been from the mid-20th century. You know, Bing Crosby, oh. uh, Frank Sinatra, hmm. Elvis Presley. Uh, Etc. So I'm. I'm uh, so right away, I'll say at the beginning, I don't make lists. If I had to think of somebody who exemplifies some of the best qualities mm-hmm. of American life and and was a pathbreaker, I would uh, probably pick Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Now, tell us a little bit about him and what quantifies the fact yeah. that you figured he is a great American. The uh, Jefferson was, of course, a a Virginia planter, connected with some of the most important families of Virginia in the 18th century, Mm -hmm. although his own father was uh, not particularly uh, well-connected. They were hardy, enterprising Virginia planters, and Jefferson himself was uh, had gone to all the, the best schools you could in Virginia. He was mm-hmm. an extremely educated man and could have held his own uh, in uh, in England or France at the time. Uh, mostly, what Jefferson is famous for mm-hmm. in history textbooks is that piece of complete nonsense called the Declaration of Independence. Uh? The, but uh, there's another side of Jefferson. Jefferson was a wide-ranging thinker. And, um, he's not always right. Mm-hmm. And he's a little bit too uh, eager to throw over certain aspects of tradition and religion. Hmm. But at the core, there is a, an understanding in Jefferson that first he, that people left to their own devices without too much government can learn within families, within households, within Mm -hmm. communities to govern themselves Mm -hmm. and that uh, he was more Machiavellian Mm -hmm. than say uh, Alexander Hamilton and John Adams who believed that you could trust to the rich and well-born that they had the virtue and the dedication to be able to look after the country. Mm -hmm. Jefferson trusted no one. He Mm -hmm. did not trust human nature. He knew that ultimately human beings are depraved and if you give them power over uh, over other human beings they will eventually abuse that power. 
Hence his most famous uh, statement probably, which is uh, a little revolution now and then is a good thing. The, the tree of liberty mm. must, uh, uh, must always be watered by the, by, must be refreshed by the blood of patriots and tyrants. I mean, this is a, almost like a Maoist doctrine of perpetual revolution. Mm. But what he understood is power always tends to concentrate. It always tends to consolidate in the hands of whoever happens to, to, to find themselves in possession of power. And so therefore, he believed not just in the separation of powers, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, the executive branch, mm -hmm. but Jefferson and his followers believed very much that power should also be broken up in the national level, the state mm -hmm. level, the local level. And in fact, he went so far as to believe in neighborhood government. Hmm. You know, so that so that this little like a couple a thousand people, a couple of thousand people, they should have not just town meetings but neighborhood meetings, and these he called them ward republics because a ward is like a a, a section of a city, mm -hmm. and that they should be able to organize things like safety patrols, fires, uh, keeping the streets up, you know, noise ordinances, all that sort of stuff hmm. should be handled by by a, a, a neighborhood organization. So Jefferson understood that power is best kept at the lowest possible level. Mm. And this is what the Catholics call the principle of subsidiarity, that you should never, you should never go from, it, it, unless it's absolutely necessary, never transfer power, say, from uh, family to neighborhood, from neighborhood to city, from city to county, from county to state, mm. to state to federal, or federal to global government. Sure. Keep it as, keep it, keep power down to the lowest level. He didn't think that, that, that common people were virtuous or more mm. virtuous than the rich because he didn't trust anyone. But what he did trust was people of, good, of goodwill and decency mm. that they would, uh, that they would uh, work out their problems together. Kind of comes with that saying absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right, exactly. That's what he believed. Yeah. The, on the other hand, he was an aristocrat. He was a Virginia aristocrat. He had no illusions about the virtues of being dumb or uneducated or unwashed. His plan for education in the state of Virginia, very interesting. Again, it would, it would be based on a neighborhood school that you go for the first couple of years, and then there'd be a higher school. And eventually, when you were, when you were properly prepared, like uh, at the age of 16, you could, if you could pass the entrance test to the University of Virginia, which he created, mm -hmm. once you pa then you could, uh, you could enter Virginia, but it was always like the top 10% going off to the next level. This was egalitarian because it's open to everyone, mm -hmm. but ruthlessly elitist mm -hmm. because it's pass or fail, succeed or don't succeed. Mm -hmm. And he said, here, people, he's always accused of being a, uh, a, a democratic a leveler, somebody who believed, you know, power to the people. He said, so we might rake from the rubbish annually a fewer, one or two selected geniuses, select geniuses. Mm. In other words, the idea was to have a system where, of course, you have an aristocracy based on, on uh, wealth and social position, but that, that aristocracy is constantly being refreshed by upward mobility from people of talent who work hard. Hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's, he thought of it as a very progressive, forward-looking vision, mm -hmm. but it's also got a, a strong hint 
of uh, of medievalism about it because of the 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 concentration on on uh, people living in the country. He did not trust city people at all. Mm. He didn't like industry at all. He he believed that we were a nation of farmers and ought to stay a nation of farmers. Oh. And anyway. I would think that for all Jefferson's faults, including rewriting the Bible. I was going to ask yeah. about the Jefferson Bible. <laughs> yeah. For all his faults, that he represents some of the worst qualities in America. That is, we have this can-do attitude, you know, oh, if something may have troubled the human race for 20,000 years, but we, we can snap our fingers and make it go away because yeah. we got the cleverness. He has that. But he has this profound sense of rootedness in Virginia, mm -hmm. so he's intensely local, and he, in, he uh, despite the lies that have been told about Jefferson mm -hmm. uh, on his views of education, how he wanted to get, do away with the classical tradition, mm -hmm. nothing could be farther from the truth. What he wanted you to be was an accomplished classicist before you entered the university. Wasn't there some controversy also as to a slave or something like that? I can't remember what it was. Is that, does that have any uh, uh, credence? Um, not, well, let's put it this way. The, the, the story uh, that he had uh, a, a, a sexual relationship with the slave woman Sally Hemings mm. and fathered a child or children by her, uh, there are the story goes back to Jefferson's lifetime okay. when uh, he had been paying a Scottish printer to uh, to print newspaper pro Jefferson pro pro Democratic Republican uh, propaganda and okay. criticizing the the Federalist Party. This guy then tried to shake Jefferson down for more money. Mm -hmm. And Jefferson said, "No, no, you you're paid by the job or not. This is no big deal." And the man said, "I can fix you." And so this man, his name was Calendar. Calendar then printed these, uh, this story, true or false, he printed it, and it got picked up by a visiting uh, Irish poet, Tom Moore, very famous uh, poet, good friend of Byron, and mm. uh, he, he wrote songs like, when off through the stilly night, ere slumber's chains had bound me, mm. or believe me if, believe me if all those endearing young charms. All right. It's a, enough of that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so this, so uh, Moore put it in a, a series of poems he wrote in imitation of Ovid's exile poetry. Okay. And uh, so it went around the world. Now, it pretty much got ignored after a while, and then a guy named Joe Ellis revived it, gave material, gave information to some geneticists and some testing, mm. and they said, yeah, it's, uh, it looks like it's right. What Ellis did was, frankly, lied to the geneticist. He said, we've proved the case historically. Now, can you find uh, genetic contact between the descendants of uh, the Hemings family and, uh, and the Jeffersons? Okay. And they did. Well, it was well known that uh, Jefferson had an uncle and other relations who were regularly having these liaisons oh. with black women. And, and Pretty Sally, as she was called, Pretty was uh, perhaps not the most strict in her behavior. Oh. And so what we know is that at some point, all we know is this, at some point, uh, some, some Jefferson had a relationship with okay. somebody related to Sally Hemming. By the way, even if the story were true, so what? A lot of, you know, you say, it's like, what, you don't believe in miscegenation? You think blacks and whites shouldn't ever get together? Mm. And, and, of course, the feminist argument, oh, well, she was abused. We just, we, we have no evidence for that. Mm -hmm. She was treated by Jefferson's wife 
as a member of the family. Hmm. And you know, as you did with household servants in those days, they're slaves, but the the the, the masters never called them uh, slaves. They always said our people. Hmm. These are our people. Hmm. It's very medieval, very ancient, and very uh, and romance is certainly um, certainly developed. But the best studies I know, like uh, of this, for example, by. Uh, Eugene Genovese and his wife uh, Elizabeth Fox Genovese, they show pretty clearly that you know black people are resourceful, creative, mm -hmm. and they know how to they sure. know how to manipulate the scene. Okay. How many women? How many women that are accusing Harvey Weinstein how were uh, willing victims? Oh, and the question is in Hollywood. Uh, perhaps the vast majority. Mm. So, yeah, whenever there's a power uh, inequality between right. men and women, the men will exploit it. But the, the the idea that somehow this is a debt, if even if we're true, and there's no evidence it is true, okay. even if it were true, so what? I see. Okay. Well, all right. Well, I, I'm glad we got a chance to kind of look at those two things, the, yeah. the, the Bible thing and then this woman as well. No, we haven't actually looked at the Bible thing, but we're just briefly. Yeah. Jefferson was I'd an like 18th century, you know, he was a what we would now call a liberal, a progressive. He believed, okay. in, he believed in sweet reason, and he thought, uh, he thought Jesus Christ was the greatest moral teacher in the history of the world. However, he did not think he was God. Oh. And he did not believe in miracles. Okay. And so, uh, so, and obviously miracles include the resurrection from the dead. Right. Both in both our resurrection and also our Lord's resurrection. Okay. So if you look, I've I've actually looked at a couple of times just for fun. Looked at Jefferson's Bible. Anything. You know, what he did, it's really not about, all he does is go out and strike passages out. It's not like okay. he printed his own thing up. Yeah, I got the impression there was a whole, you know, printing of yeah, these and you no, could get them. No, 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 it's just a, it's just, a, it's just a something he did. Okay. So look at, you know, um, it, it's what, it's what today the government would call in its lying phrase, redacting. Redacting. You know, the FBI said, we redacted. No, you didn't. You censored. Redacting is what an editor does when he takes a piece of ill-written copy and makes it grammatical, forcefully written and punctuates it correctly okay. it spells that's redacting. redacting no they're just striking out stuff they don't want you to know I and see. so that's what what Jefferson and by the way the fact that the FBI uses this lying term Ooh. redacting yes tells you the mindset of people because when people can corrupt language that way it's because they're trying to deceive you right anyway go back to Jefferson so of course uh, it, it ends you know, it, it ends, I believe it ends before the crucifixion. Okay. He certainly doesn't, he certainly, Jesus does not come back in the Jefferson Bible. Okay. Um, but because he saw Christ's ministry as essentially ethical. Okay. And, um, and he admired it, but obviously you can't allow this stuff to be done in, a, in anything like a, a religious society. And Jefferson was accused of being an atheist, which he wasn't. He was a deist. He believed there was some great power in the universe, like the okay. Indian great spirit, great spirit yeah. who is a responsible, who wanted us to be good and live well. It's a crummy, shallow uh, thought, but it's what, it's what everybody of his social class believed. And by the way, it's what virtually all the framers of the American Constitution. Okay. There's some clown a couple of years ago, right around giving lectures, wrote a book on how, how the, Cre the American founders were all Christian. I can't think of a one. Oh, really? Not John Adams. Not in a traditional sense, Christian. No, no not in the sense that they believe Jesus is God okay. uh, and uh, was born of the Holy Ghost and 
and uh, and it was re- died taking the miraculous out of all of it and, yeah. and just yeah. that if you don't believe if you don't be- if you don't believe in the divinity of Christ no matter how crude your understanding is see an Arian who believes that Christ comes second to God the Father that's one thing that's a mistake from traditional Christian terms but it's within it's within the Christian universe it's something to argue about these people none of them not a one of them Washington. Well, after he'd been dead for 20 years, they found his chaplain, and they asked, well, what about, what did Washington feel about, because Jesus Christ, because by now the, the second awakening had come, and there had been the, all these yes. revivals, mm-hmm. and the guy thought about it, he said, I can't re- remember General Washington ever referring t- to uh, our Lord. Hmm. Said he would no. This had no meaning for him. Well, he might have had speeches or something that said, "And may God bless us." Yeah. Well, it's like uh, Lincoln, who uh, who was more or less an atheist, and uh, not just a deist. Lincoln talks about the awful author of our being. Or he never he hates the word God, and he will never refer to the divinity of Christ because Lincoln wrote a book debunking the divinity of Christ. Really? Yeah. I mean, it, it was destroyed by his friends who thought if it ever got out, it would ruin Lincoln's political career. But Lincoln was not only not a Christian, but he was an aggressive mocker and skeptic. Well, that's really hard to believe because I always saw old Honest Abe, you know, reading the Bible, sitting by the tree, eating an apple or something. But uh, so... Yeah. By uh, the way, he never, so far as his young law partner, Billy Herndon, if he's, if he, when you know, they were partners, they lived together. Okay. Herndon said he never saw Abe ever read a book. Really? He was, not, he was a non-reader. He would only read the newspaper. He would get the political gossip out of the paper. It's really hard for somebody like me to uh, buy into that um, because I've been fed for so many years that this great yeah. man and so forth and so on. So uh, when you say that, I'm very taken aback. I'm yeah. like, wait a minute, are you sure your sources are correct? <laughs> yeah, my sources are all come from Lincoln's family and friend. When, when his stepmother was asked, uh, well, what, what about, uh, about Abraham's uh, religious views? And he, she said, well, when I knew him, uh, Abe didn't have no religion. I don't guess he ever got any. Okay, well... One of his yeah. friends, a judge, said he never went to church except to mock the preacher. Oh, really? I mean, no, this is, this is Quote just over... There. Yeah, this is just overwhelming. And I'm, I'm sorry that I seem to have it at my fingertips because I used to give speeches and debate, uh, debate the subject of Lincoln, and, and really his... And these are from friends. Yes. These are not from enemies. These are what his best friends say about it. Sure. Well, okay. Now, speaking of American history, um, yeah. and I, I, I'd like to broaden the question. Sure. Now, let's go on to number two. Yeah. So here's my second question. Who is the most significant person in the last 50 years? Significant, uh, does this include for good and ill? Yes. Uh... Some of the most significant people would certainly, uh, one of them is Adolf Hitler. I knew you were going to say that. Because Hitler put together a a very deadly combination of socialism and nationalism. Mm -hmm. Hitler, Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, all were working uh, working the same street. In other words, let's find a way of uh, getting the working classes and lower classes on our side. Sure. We'll make them very nationalistic and warmongering. On the other hand, we'll, t- we'll tax the middle and upper classes to death 
and and transfer and buy the votes of the of the lower class. Sure. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna butt in here uh, just a moment. The reason I asked the question fifty years because I was hoping to yeah, that, that would be so after Second going, World yeah. War. Okay, okay, I was hoping okay. that somebody I could kind of go, oh yeah, right, you know, and connect with. Yeah. Uh, good, just good, good. I obviously I can't, Obviously, their... I can't count. Yeah. I can add, but I can't subtract 50 from 2018. Not a mathematician. Never going to write Alice in Wonderland. No. No. So you're saying, actually, uh, I could you, I could extend it to, to my conscious lifetime. There you go. I'm be, thinking 50 years. 50, 60 years. There you go. Um, in politics, I don't. I can't think of a single person who really amounted to much. <laughs> that is, they all uh, they are all imitators, con artists. Con, yes. Uh, uh, you know, n none of them. Um, uh, it, uh, do I have much respect for? I have a little bit of respect for uh, Charles de Gaulle, but again, he, for trying to rebuild uh, post-war uh, France in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And uh, beyond that, in politics, uh, nobody. And I would say that we live in one of the most rapidly deteriorating periods yeah. of human history, if you, whether you look at the arts, you you know you look at music you look at painting you look at poetry mm -hmm. it's a we're going uh, so rapidly downhill it, it's sort of like a, a diver a deep sea diver you go down so rapidly you get what they call the bends yes you know and well I, we have the cultural things. bends uh, we're descending as so we rapidly. descend now if we took fifty years and we said what about uh, let's narrow it again yeah. then see if we can find somebody uh, let's talk about the last fifty years of presidents could you is there a significant person in that that you would say uh, this guy did good work or this guy did really lousy work and maybe try to pick one that was just the worst or maybe the best of uh, the last 50 years? I would say the two presidents who did the most important thing, the most important thing is to stand up to the permanent government. Okay. You know, now you, you get these kooks on the radio who talk about the deep state and uh, we used to talk about uh, the permanent government. And uh, however, and I, I don't like to talk about the deep state because. Well, would you give me just a quick definition of the deep state? So for these, I think we're I think we're talking about nut jobs like uh, Alex Jones and other. And they okay. think that they look upon this. There's a conspiracy. It doesn't matter who wins the election because there are these little men in offices okay. who are controlling everything. The truth is, we know who these people are. Right. This morning, I turned on the radio to listen to news for a few minutes, and they mm -hmm. had Richard Haas you know, gassing on about uh, why the Trump administration's policy toward Iran was totally wrong. Hmm. And, uh, well, who is Richard Haas? Well, he's a diplomat. He's the head of the, uh, of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations. The Council on Foreign Relations is part of a permanent government apparatus that rules America. Hmm. And, but they don't make any secret of anything. We know what they want. They want global government. They want glo they want glo for global economy, right. global diplomacy. They want global administration. This is what this is what they want, and they're never going to budge from it because right. they're heavily invested, both personally but also financially. So we've since the New Deal, since uh, since 1932, okay. we have been developing this permanent, unyielding democracy that c controls both uh, bureaucracy that controls both parties. Uh, the 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 most important thing a president could do, or a polit a political figure could do, okay. would to a blow the whistle on it and stand up against it. Okay. Now, of the politicians who have blown the whistle on it, for example, George Wallace, who said. 
between the Democrats and the Republicans, there's not a dime's worth of difference. Okay. And he campaigned for the presidency on the grounds that both parties were uh, entirely corrupt and had no concern for the welfare of the American people. I think most people, at least uh, around here, would probably agree that um, the political arena now is so corrupt that they don't represent us, yeah. and uh, most people just plainly feel badly yeah. about the way it well, look is. Well, look at the Illinois legislature. Right. You know, and of course... And We're in Illinois, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Worst I mean, case it, scenario. Yeah, it, it, it is, and, and Rockford is as bad as it gets in Illinois. We're as bad as Chicago in, in, in every respect. But so, so one, uh, George Wallace was unsuccessful. He was, uh, he was shot and that put an end to his career. Yeah. And maybe he was too regional, although, by the way, he had tremendous following in the Rust Belt in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee area, in, in Michigan. But <clears throat> Nixon, who uh, borrowed a lot from, uh, from Wallace, Nixon had terrible policies uh, in general, like his domestic policies were a continuation of the socialist policies of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. But uh, Nixon did stand up to the permanent government, okay. and as was pointed out at the time, uh, they, imp they impeached him and got rid of him because right. he challenged their right to rule us. Hmm. And, you know, it was Nixon who inspired the hard hat demonstrations against the hippies and the anti-war movement. Hmm. By the way, speaking as somebody who was 100% against the Vietnam War, hmm. I had no use for the hippies who were demonstrating, who were, you know, the, the idea that because you disagree with a policy, you then spit on Americans who have been drafted yeah. to go over and serve. I, that's not amusing. And the people who did that, yeah. the Jane Fonda types, right. but you got to multiply Jane Fonda by a million hmm. or 10 million, and uh, these, these people who are now holding office, they're college professors, they're U.S. senators, I, I think they, they really should have been Pretty forced. dark time. So been... you would give Nixon uh, a thumbs up and a thumbs down. Yeah. As a significant person who, number one, uh, challenged the regime and also then contributed uh, poorly to the welfare of yeah. America. But uh, the, uh, yeah, an another thumbs up and thumbs down was his China policy. Thumbs up for the, for the brilliance and the execution. Really quite okay. brilliant. Looking for an ally against the Soviet Union. Now, of course, in my view, in the, in the long run, the Russians are perhaps our best potential ally, and the Chinese can never be an ally. Right. But, so I, but you've got you, you to give them very high praise for uh, for the ta for the tactic. Similarly, I would give high praise for the way George Bush the first okay. managed a war which was immoral and unjust on all grounds. That is the the uh, the first Gulf War, okay. but he did it with uh, with with great aplomb. The way he organized both the Arab countries and our European allies, and he told little his son, little Georgie, if you can't get those people on board, you can't go after Saddam Hussein. Hmm. His son ignored him, and what we had was the complete debacle of, right. uh, of Iraq. So I would not put uh, Bush 1, although I would think Bush 1 was the last grown-up uh, to be president of the United States. Since that, then, I give extremely high marks to Donald Trump, hmm. not 
not because of his policies, not because, certainly not because of his sense of dignity and decorum. No. But he is standing up to the permanent government. I think everybody sees that. Yeah. It includes, it includes all the media. It includes Hollywood. It includes the, the, the academic world. It includes the state. They always say, well, he's violating protocol. He's violating some protocol established by Barack Obama or Bill Clinton. Yeah. He, he just doesn't care. And I think the reason why not only did he win the election against, uh, against what you might call the ugly, bloated face yes. of, the, of the permanent government, not only did he win that, but he's actually, despite 95%, 98% negative, even, even Fox News is about 60% negative in its reporting on Trump. Mm -hmm. And despite all of that, uh, he's it, depending on the polls you read. He's around fifty percent. Sure, it, and which has risen over the past year. All right. Despite gaffe after gaffe, scandal after scandal, any one of these stories would have broken a previous president. But we've got to the point now that we don't care. Yeah, I think the listeners were probably very surprised that you would give Trump such high marks, but you give him high marks for bucking the system. For being basically. the bully of the China shop. There you go. And uh, maybe accomplishing something that yeah. many, many, many others wouldn't even attempt. No, no. He, he thinks he can do it. See, I don't think he could do it. But, uh, and I never thought he could. Mm. But uh, there is something sublimely goofball American. <laughs> you know, this is like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Right, okay. The outsider who doesn't know anything and just, well, it uh, looks to me like common sense would tell you you do it this way. Mm. And that's the whole bloody administration. First of all, if you're a humorist, it'd be very funny, although the, why can't people like Stephen Colbert at Saturday Night Live actually make good jokes at Trump's expense? Because yeah. they're not funny. Right. And they're losing audience, and they know it. Yeah. They're losing audience. Trump is Im impervious. He is, he's like a force of nature. Yes. I, um, uh, the more <clears throat> I've become... Uh, I, want, I, I don't want to say pro-Trump, but the more I've marveled at what he's doing, the more I dislike Colbert and yeah. his ilk. Yeah. I just, uh, I turn it off as soon as I, or even in the mornings, you know, watching Good Morning America or something like that, uh, I just shut it off, uh, uh, Stephanopoulos, you know, whatever. I don't, yeah, I, don't even, I don't even care to hear your opinion about this situation, because I know it's always <laughs> going to be negative. Yeah. So, um, all right, let's turn the page. All we'll right, go, we'll yeah. go a different direction. Next question is, this would be number three. If you had a time machine, what I, place... I do, I do, by the way. Yeah, you do have a time machine. Forgot about <laughs> you, you that. Forget it. I need to, you know, it's... Uh, I think of, uh, what was it, Mr. Peabody and yes. Sherman and Mr. Peabody. That's right. I've the often way, thought the of, way back machine. Exactly. Maybe we could jump on that and, uh, yes. and I could be, you know, the wily Sherman. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a time machine, what place in time would you like to go and what historical figure would you like to meet and talk with? A place mm -hmm. in time and a person. We have this running uh, sort of fantasy on our website called uh, Born Out of Due Time, mm -hmm. in which uh, the hero finds himself uh, not physically but mentally communing with previous ages. So mm. he's constantly uh, having chats with Dante and Dante's enemies. Mm. And in one episode, he ends up uh, imagining he is Socrates. Uh, the whole point is that he has this gift of being mm -hmm. able to gravitate towards certain ages. I have about five or six favorite ages I regularly visit for several months at a time and live within. 
Hmm. So one of them is uh, ancient Greece from, say, um, 600 to 400. Okay. You know, uh, depending on, you know, I, I like the, the life in Ionia and the Greek islands. And what I, figure would be appropriate to that? Like you could go and have a chat with I'd love to, I would love to have been there in, say, during the Persian Wars to, mm. see, to see tiny little nothing city of Athens rise to be able to, sharing power with Sparta to take on the, uh, the the greatest power in the history of the world up till that point the Persian Empire right and defeat them first on the plains of Marathon under the great uh, political and military leader Miltiades and then uh, to follow the exploits of Miltiades' son, uh, Cimon, in driving the Persians out uh, okay. of the Aegean Sea all the way, all the way back to the Middle East. Um, and yet at the same time, Greek tragedy is, uh, is beginning to take shape. So the, the basic, the great founder of, of classical tragedy, Aeschylus, mm -hmm. also fought with his with his brother he was there his brother died fighting at marathon wow the the greeks by this time by the end of the 6th century it's as if okay we know they're egyptians we know they're phoenicians we know they're babylonians and they've they've given us things but we're on our own we're we're, we're more or less making this up as we go along hmm. there's just this tremendous sense there's never been before or since a people that have been so explosively creative. Now, I won't say responsible or ethical necessarily, but much of what we think about as characteristic of our civilization, philosophy, tragedy, mm -hmm. comedy, the writing of history, all our forms of thought and culture are taking shape with these wonderful people who are, by the way, uh, they're never professional artists. They're always citizens, farmers, soldiers. They're go going off to war fighting these battles. Amazing people. Other periods, I'd love to have lived in the, uh, in the Roman Republic before the Punic Wars, or for, for laughs, live in the age of Caesar and Cicero, uh, because that's one of the best documented uh, periods. I see. There are so many great periods. I'm not a subscriber to the great man theory of history, you know, that, that there's always one or two people like Napoleon mm -hmm. and Caesar. Napoleon and Caesar don't really interest me that much. But it would have been great to go to, say, a symposium or a, a dinner party at which you could sit around and, gee, here's Sophocles, Aristophanes, Socrates, <laughs> you know, Cimon uh, or Pericles. You have, these, you have these, these groups of people who are joshing, having fun, yeah. singing songs, pinching slave girls. And uh, <laughs> when, when, when I was... Uh, they could get into a lot of trouble pinching those slave girls. That's setting a bad example, you know. Yeah. When, uh, our alas, these are Greek slave boys too. But oh, boy. The, um, when uh, I was a first-year Greek student, 17, mm. and my Greek professor, Kiffin Ayers Rockwell, said, you know, somebody once remarked, that, you know, Socrates and those guys, all they were doing was shooting the immortal bull. And then Rockwell looked at the class. I think he may have been quoting somebody. He looked at the class and he said, yes, they did, but it was immortal bull. <laughs> immortal bull. Immortal bull. So in, in our own tradition, you know, the most recent period I would have liked to have lived in mm -hmm. America, I, would have, I think it would have been very nice to have lived in the in the Midwest 
after the war between the states, because a lot of money came in, people were getting there, there were financial panics, but the world of uh, described by Booth Tarkington in the 18, from the 1890s to, the, to mm. World War I, the world of Penrod, the world uh, later on, unfortunately, we see it in collapse of the Magnificent Ambersons. I think, uh, by the way, Tarkington is the most American writer we have. I think, along with Mark Twain, he is the, the greatest American fiction writer. Mm. And he's, com he's completely pushed to the side because he writes books that ordinary people can read and enjoy. <laughs> he's not pretentious. He, uh, and he understood uh, the transformation of America that was taking place. Well, what would be the magic like of actually that? being there? Yeah. I mean, you can read it, the books and so yeah. forth. And that, but I mean, if you wanted to live in that time, what, would you, what did you call it, 1890? Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just, what would you enjoy at that time? I think, or who would you speak with? Of course, you could yeah. talk with those authors yeah. potentially. It would be a very low-level, modest pleasure. But things like you know Sunday picnics at the park, ah. the, the the pace of life, the decency, the mm. quietness, the the respectable uh, marriages, the ever everything. Or you sort of see it in the film version of Clarence Day's Life with Father. Uh -huh. You know, men men who honored and respected their wives. So you see it as a very moral time. Yeah, a very moral time, a time in which people knew how to enjoy life. My, uh, the man who hired me <clears throat> at the Rockford Institute years ago was John Howard. And whenever one went to visit John in the country at a place up in Lake Minocqua, he never turned on the TV, mm -hmm. didn't turn on the radio. He, somebody would sit down and play something at the piano. And then he had all these different paper and pencil games mm -hmm. that you realize this is how life was when John was growing up in the 1930s. Uh, when people didn't pay others to entertain them, they knew how to entertain themselves. Hmm. There was a self-sufficiency and decency about these people. And um, I've always respected and admired that pre-World War II generation. Right. And I realized that they were reflecting a really a pre-World pre War I world. Yes. And so nothing great, nothing fantastic, <laughs> nothing like uh, Elizabethan England, which would have been wonderful to be alive sure. in. Sure. Nothing like any of these great periods, but there is there it, it there is enormous uh, charm. By the way, uh, the, the the nearest thing to an important writer we have to in Rockford would have been a Sterling North who lived across the border. Uh, he wrote uh, he wrote a famous book called Rascal and uh, about, a, about a raccoon. That is a fine book. Don't, don't let, the fact that Disney made a dumb movie, don't, don't let anybody kid you. Rascal, which takes place partly on Lake, Lake Koshkanong. Okay. And also So Dear to My Heart, which takes place up there. These are books about life in the upper Midwest in the late 19th and early 20th century. Hmm. And again, Rascal is really a book about how you how you cope with loss. Uh, the boy's mother is dead, and the father spends his whole life uh, building a canoe in the living room, so they can't even live in the living room because <laughs> the, because they're both desolate. They don't know what to do. They don't know how right, to live. Lost. And so so the father has his boat, and the kid the kid has his raccoon. I see. And periodically the sister who's remarkably like your sister, mm. comes sweeping in and said, you get this boat out of here, you put it in the garage, we're cleaning this house now. <laughs> right, that's my sister. <laughs> so uh, the picture of life in these books, it, it, there's a lot of, of, uh, of wholesome, decent charm, and it wouldn't have been exciting time to live. Mm. But exciting times can be very unpleasant for yes. most people. 
You know, there's a Chinese proverb, let, uh, let me not live in, in uh, exciting times. Really? Yeah. Because... Because the exciting times be war, death, plague, desolation, yeah. you know. French Revolution, that's really exciting. Made all the history books, but yeah. all the stuff that's just that low-key, enjoyable, yeah. serene, that's not things that people really want to hear about. It's too boring, I yeah. guess. Well, yeah. we've gotten through three questions, as I figured we probably would, <laughs> but uh, we're going to continue this uh, in part two. Uh, thank you, Doctor, for answering my questions. We'll continue next time, all right? Thank you, Rex. It's been fun.